and great scientists and their discoveries. Many of these scientists had messy lives. Many of their discoveries were accidental. Most of these great scientists are dead. That means they can't refute the gossip I'm about to throw around about them. We can look up the speed of light or the distance to the moon in mere seconds. Even though I'd like to pretend otherwise, when I read sci-fi novels or watch a sci-fi movie or, or a series, nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. How did scientists figure this out in the first place, often at a time when there was no running water? Heck, in 1543, it was heresy to think that the Earth wasn't the center of the universe. Let's give a nod to Polish astronomer Nicholas Copernicus. It was in 1543 when he published his theory that the Sun is at the center of the solar system, with the planets revolving around them. Before that, oh my gosh, Ptolemy stated that the Earth was at the center of the universe. I may have botched his name up. I've actually only read it, never heard it said out loud. It took the Catholic Church 67 years to officially disprove Copernicus. Nothing happened to him because he died two years after he published his uh, landmark theory. His ideas were popular with scientists and the general public, but definitely not with the, with the church. It's amazing that in the 21st century, astronomers discover planets around distant stars from a mere wobble or transit. For more on what transits are, you can go to my website. I have a post about that. It wasn't until 1978 that anyone noticed Pluto had a moon. Even though flat earthers continue to refute the evidence, by the fifth century, the Greeks had already established that Earth is a sphere. So now we know the Earth revolves around the sun. The next question that plagued, pe plagued people, how big is the Earth? Fast forward to the first half of the 18th century. Many people wanted to understand the Earth, how big it was, where it hung in the space, how it came to be. Although they knew it was a sphere, except for the flat earthers, of course, they didn't know how big the sphere was or the circumference. Why does anyone care about this? Well, these details don't seem like a big deal, but in the 18th century, details made a big difference circumnavigating the globe. People back then couldn't hop on a plane after all. No one wanted, wanted to get lost at sea in what was essentially a sailboat with no toilet. And I'm sure they didn't have Dramamine. In 1735, the French Academy of Sciences sent out expeditions to answer one of the great questions at the time, what is the Earth's circumference? They sent scientists to the equator. This does not look like an easy trip in a sailboat with no toilet. But why South America and why the Andes? They could have stayed in their own backyard and did their measurements. The officials in what is now Ecuador wondered this too. The team was met with deep suspicion wherever they went, which caused all manner of troubles. The reason? It was because of Sir Isaac Newton. No one in Ecuador found this a compelling argument either. You know Newton. He's the gravity guy. He definitely makes the top 10 great scientists in their discoveries list. Actually, he wrote The Three Laws of Motion, a brilliant achievement for anyone at any time. Paraphrased, the number one law of motion by Newton, a thing moves in the direction in which it is pushed and will keep moving in a straight line until some other force acts to slow or deflect it. When a force acts on an object, it will cause the object to accelerate. Seems intuitively obvious now, doesn't it? Every action has an opposite and equal reaction. 
Newton's laws are still used in classical mechanics today. What you didn't know about Newton is he was one quirky guy. He once stared at the sun for so long, uh, as long as he could bear, really, to determine what effect of any it would have on his vision. Miraculously, his eyes escaped lasting damage. He also stuck a needle in his eye. Why? Because in the 18th century, people weren't sure if eyes were responsible for collecting light or creating it. Really. When his college sent their students home because of the plague, which we have experienced firsthand in 2020, unfortunately, with our pandemic, he invented calculus because he was bored. Newton didn't have YouTube videos or reruns of The Office to numb his brain. Newton didn't share his calculus invention for decades. So when a German mathematician, Gottfried von Leibniz, announced his new invention calculus, the two of them fought about who should get credit for a couple of decades. An analysis of a strand of Newton's hair in the 1970s found that it contained mercury at 40 times the natural level. Perhaps this is what partially explains his quirks. Maybe we should let our kids watch reruns of The Office and reruns of other TV shows instead of experimenting with Mercury. I know, I know, there's some common ground in between those two extremes. Let's get back to the reason that the expedition went to the Andes. According to Newton, the centrifugal force of the Earth's spin should result in a slight flattening at the poles and a bulging at the equator. That means the length of a degree would shorten as you moved away from the equator. Are you rolling your eyes now? Think about it. These people spent a year on a boat to get from Europe to South America instead of a day on a plane. It did matter to them. All we need to worry about is whether or not the line at the coffee shop will be too long so we can get a latte between connections. So once they got there, work permits were hard to come by because of the suspicious nature of their measuring. The visitors provoked the locals and were chased out of town by a mob throwing stones. The expedition's doctor was murdered in a misunderstanding over a woman. The botanist lost his mind. Maybe he was overwhelmed by the flora. I don't know. One of the men in charge ran off with a 13-year-old girl and refused to return. And of course, they faced challenging jungles and rivers, and before that, challenging mountains. All this to take measurements at the equator to see if Newton was right. The expedition was led by astronomers Pierre Bouguer. <laughs> I'm sure I botched that one up. Bouguer, Bouguer, and mathematician Marie de la Condamine. A few years prior, la Condamine had exploited a loophole in the French government lottery and had money to burn. Bouguier detected an error in La Condamine's measurements, which La Condamine refused to acknowledge. They stopped speaking and traveled separately from then on. Later, after Bouguier died, this enabled La Condamine to receive most of the credit for the expedition. Oh, he was pretty happy with that, I'm sure. How did they measure anyway? It's called triangulation. It's geometry, which I find annoying because this is so useful, and whoever likes geometry? You can let me know in comments if you do. Triangulation is a proven geographic technique to measure distance. If one knows the length of one side of a triangle and the angles of two corners, one can calculate the other dimensions. They did prove that Newton was right. A degree is longer near the poles than at the northern latitudes. It would only take you 10 seconds to look this up online, depending on your Wi-Fi connection, but it took those guys 10 years. 
Their measurements stand the test of time today. Hubris aside, they were remarkable. Let's shrink things down and look at a few great scientists who discovered what makes up our Earth. Chemistry as a respectable science dates back to about 1661. At that time, chemistry was somewhat of an accidental science. So when a guy named Henning Brand, perhaps because urine was yellow, decided he could condense urine into gold, people weren't put off by the theory. After he collected and condensed 50 buckets of urine, which is disgusting, a strange thing happened. His noxious, disgusting paste burst into flame. Enter phosphorus, an element that reacts with oxygen to produce flames. Because of the labor involved in boiling down urine, at the time, phosphorus was worth more than gold. So in a way, Brand did find his gold. 50 years later, phosphorus had made its way into matches, fertilizer, and unfortunately, bombs. I'm not sure who had a more muted olfactory sense, Brand, or our next great scientist, Carl Scheele. A pharmacist, Scheele devised a way to produce phosphorus without urine. He was interested in noxious and often poisonous compounds. He discovered oxygen. So did a man named Joseph Priestley. Scheele called oxygen fire air, which is not very catchy. There were a lot of discoveries of elements back then, and a lot of rushing to get papers published and fighting over credit. Scheele also discovered chlorine by heating several dangerous and dangerous acids. Oh, I said that twice, different and dangerous acids. Scheele is considered the father of modern organic, organic chemistry. He did have a significant flaw. He liked to taste all of his compounds. Ew. As a result of this quirk, he was found dead over his workbench in 1786. He was only 43. Scheele wasn't the only great scientist to end his life on a tragic note. Lavoisier actually lost his head. It was Antonion, An Antoine Lavoisier who brought chemistry to the modern age. In 1768, he bought shares in a despicable company that only taxed who they wanted and somehow managed to get away with it. This afforded Lavoisier a lot of income. At his peak, his personal earn earnings equated to $20 million a year in today's money. Next, Lavoisier married the 14-year-old daughter of one of his bosses. Apparently, she was bright and beautiful and interested in science. Her name was Marie Anne. Her brainy wife used to translate science books into French for her husband so he could understand them. He gets all the credit, but with his brainy wife and an amazing laboratory from all his cash, he was able to identify oxygen for what it really was, not fire air. He gave hydrogen his name, its name, and he showed that matter cannot be transformed, can be transformed, but not eliminated. This was huge. Lavoisier proved that a rusting object gained weight. He and his wife concluded that metal attracted particles from the air. Actually, Lavoisier wasn't a bad guy, though somewhat flippant and insensitive. He borrowed Priestley's distillation methods. He didn't get credit for oxygen either. Priestley was angry. In 1780, Lavoisier made someone else angry. He made dismissive comments about a man and his theories. The theories were incorrect, but the chemist named Marat held a grudge. So in 1793, during the French reign of terror, because Lavoisier was part of the French elite, Lavoisier was arrested. And guess who was a member of the tribunal? Yes, Marat, the grudge holder. 
Lavoisier was guillotined seven months after Marie Antoinette. What about Marat, you ask? He was murdered in his bath by a young woman named Charlotte Corday. Soon afterward, she was guillotined for killing him. Living in France in 1793 was not good. Oh, and Lavoisier's wife lived and she remarried. I don't know, but maybe her second husband kept his head. Let's get the heck out of France. I must mention one of the most important discoveries in chemistry made by a man with a fantastic mother, Dmitri Mendeloff from Russia. When his dad, the headmaster of a school, went blind, his mom began to work in a factory where she became the manager. The factory eventually burned down, but she wanted her high school son, Dmitri, who was the youngest of her 14 children, to also get an education. She walked with Dmitri for 4,000 miles, depositing him in a school in St. Petersburg. She died soon after. Life wasn't kind in Russia in the 19th century either. By now, many more elements have been extracted and distilled and exploded into existence. Well, okay, they always existed, but now we knew about them. Misconceptions abounded, however. No one knew how to properly catalog, catalog anything. Chemists were using their own symbols and abbreviations, and it was a big mess. Mendelov, now a professor at St. Petersburg, wrote each of the 63 elements down on their own card and started arranging them this way and that. He noticed that they could be arranged not just by atomic mass, but also by their chemical properties. He actually thought to leave gaps where he figured elements would eventually be discovered. He was right. Another chemist, John Newlands, had suggested the same thing 30 years prior. Newlands made an analogy about octaves and music. His theory did have a few flaws, but the octave music analogy didn't go over at symposiums. People often asked him to hum. Well, okay, I made that up. I don't know what they did, but they mocked him. Humming or not, Newlands missed out. Mendelov is credited with the creation of the first periodic table one of the most important discoveries in chemistry. Let's move on to the 20th century in physics. Of course, we're gonna talk about Einstein. Most of the early days of chemistry were about inorganic uh, substances, meaning substances not associated with living things. And to summarize a whole lot of cool advances in chemistry in a paragraph, the existence of the elements and their relationships, how they make compounds that we find on Earth was the key to the theory of atoms. All these rules of reactions summarized in the periodic table devised by Mendeleev is ultimately explained by quantum mechanics. So theoretical chemistry is in fact physics. And no one can talk about physics again, as I said, without bringing up Albert Einstein. He had no affiliation with a university like Mendeleev or access to a laboratory like Lavoisier. In other words, he was a nobody and he was working in a patent office which is a fact probably everyone knows. In 1905, Einstein quietly published his papers. One showed that energy waiting to be released and energy being released are the same exact thing. Meaning there's a lot of potential energy in every living thing, including you and me and your dog and my dog, just trapped in there. This explained how stars could burn for billions of years without racing through their fuel. They convert mass to energy. He transformed physics and astronomy during the 20th century. This superseded the 200-year-old theory of mechanics created by our quirky, mercury-laden man, Newton.
The scientific community being what it was, his theories were not well received. He applied for a position at a university and they didn't want him. He tried to get a job as a high school science teacher, no go. He stayed at the patent office. After World War II, Einstein's theories finally drew some attention. The New York Times sent a reporter to interview Einstein. They actually sent the golf reporter. The poor golf reporter was out of his depth and got everything wrong. But Einstein changed big concepts. What we thought would never change actually could change. Gravity and mass change as the observer moves. What this means, or imagine that you're in a rainstorm. The wind is blowing against your back, and if you started running, the rain wouldn't hit your back as hard. It would be traveling slower compared to you. Scientists would say that the rain was traveling slower relative to you. If you turned around and ran towards the rain, it would hit you even harder than if you stood still. Scientists would say that the rain was moving faster relative to you. So Einstein showed that space and time can change. He finally got the recognition he deserved. There's a picture on my, oh, this picture shows him sitting in the front row at a physics conference, two people away from Marie Curie. He did make one big mistake. He calls it his greatest blunder. What he didn't realize is that the universe is expanding. An astronomer named Henrietta Swan Leavitt laid the framework for this great discovery in a stuffy little workroom at the Harvard Observatory. Working only with smudgy photographic plates of star photos, she discovered that a certain class of stars fluctuate in brightness. They're called mm. Cepheid variables. She figured out that they burn their remaining fuel in a way that produced reliable brightening and dimming. Interestingly, the North Star, or Polaris, is a Cepheid variable. She was able to work out where they were in relation to each other. Her boss, Edward Pickering, took her findings and published a paper claiming right of superiority. Actually, he called the woman working for him his Harvard computers. When another fellow named Harlow Shapley built on her discovery six years later to calculate the size of the Milky Way, he barely mentioned her. This allowed Edwin Hubble to piggyback further on Lovett's genius and discover how far galaxies were from each other. Hubble fought hard to win a Nobel Prize proving that the universe is expanding. But at the time, mm -hmm. astronomy was not considered a science, so no prizes for those guys. I don't think Hubble should have gotten one anyway. He's got that cool telescope named after him. And Levitt, she should have won the Nobel Prize. She was, she was promoted to head of the Harvard College Observatory in 1921, but she died later that same year of cancer. And since Nobel Prizes are not awarded to dead people, she can never receive one, which stinks in my opinion. Thanks to Levitt, we now knew the universe was expanding. Einstein was humbled and admitted his embarrassment. Pickley, Shapley, and Hubble don't get their names mentioned again because, well, you know why. The next question, when did this universe begin? The proof for the expanding universe didn't come for decades. 
In fact, two guys, Arnos Penzias and Robert Wilson, put the seal of approval on the Big Bang Theory, and they weren't even trying. They were radio astronomers trying to get rid of an annoying hiss in their equipment. Unknown to them, a bunch of Princeton researchers ended up pretty ticked off because they'd been trying hard to find the very background noise these, these two guys couldn't get rid of. What they found was cosmic microwaves or radiation, as you're reading this, that's still on the move from the original expansion of the universe. It proves that galaxies are expanding. It's a faint microwave noise, a remnant of radiation from a time when the universe was vastly denser and hotter. Currently, astronomers calculate that the universe is 13.7 billion years old. Now we've taken a look back at 10 great scientists and their discoveries, accidental, unrecognized in their lifetime, or stolen. And you've allowed me to poke fun at a few of them. Thank you very much, and I'm happy that you stopped and listen to this. Check out my website for more interesting cool facts about science.